Hi everyone, Wynn Claybaugh here. My next guest was born with no arms and given zero chance at a quality life, but he shattered the odds and became a musician, a disc jockey, and an award-winning professional speaker. His message will truly make you count your blessings and make you feel that you too can conquer what life throws at you. I have watched Alvin connect with the masses on his stage in front of thousands with his message, not to mention playing the drums and piano with his feet, and I've watched him connect one-on-one with my elderly mother and my young daughter. Alvin is the real deal. If you enjoy this interview as much as I did, please share it with your friends. Then head over to www.masterspodcastclub.com to sign up for our mailing list and check out Alvin's videos on his Masters Podcast profile page. Watching him play the drums and the piano with his feet will surely fill you with confidence to know that anything is possible. And now, please enjoy Alvin Law. Hi everybody, Wynn Claybaugh here and welcome to what is going to be one of those Master's interviews that I promise you're going to share it with everybody. You're going to listen to it over and over again. There's people that you come across in life, and I'm always on the hunt (laughs) for people who have stories to tell. And, you know, I can stand on stages and I have to kind of work a little harder to get people to like me or to believe that I have a story to tell. And then people like this man stands on stage and people immediately take notice. Uh, You have credibility the second you stand on a stage because this man has no arms. And I'm, we're going to hear his story, but first of all, Alvin Law, please welcome Alvin to Masters. Big toes up, my brother. Toes up. <laughs> there, there's a funny story, and tell me if this is true or not. Our good friend Kathy Buckley says <laughs> she was walking through an, an airport, and you were sitting there by yourself, and she came up and said, gosh, I could sure use a hug. <laughs> it's absolutely it, true. That really is. It's absolutely true. We were you know, sidelined by a winter storm. It was in Denver. I always remember that because I actually knew who she was. I was not a groupie, but I, you know, I didn't want to say, "You're famous." Oh, and by the way, you you talk funny. It was just right. one of those funny. Mo- and by the way, her and I have a very shared, common instinct towards pretty bad humor. Hmm. <laughs> well, at least you took it the wrong way. <laughs> you know, but it worked out, right? Yeah, I think that's why we get along so well. Is hmm. we can make fun of each other. Maybe other people can't get away with that. It's a bit of a code of the quote-unquote handicap, whichever word you choose. Frankly, I kind of miss those days once in a while where we could just tell the most disgusting, politically incorrect jokes. Not so much anymore, but when we get together, Kathy and I, we we break our own You're you're allowed. You're allowed. You're allowed. I always look to mentors such as, as you and Kathy and uh, my good friend Cedric King, who is a double amputee. I, I look to mentors like that because I'm not sure I would deal with that well. For me to have to get over something physical like that, I'm not sure that I would have the, the mindset and the disposition and the attitude and the wherewithal to move forward the way people like you do, which is why I'm seeking out mentors like you. It's hard to describe the feeling of hearing you say that because it's kind of one of those back at you, brother. I mean, you know, really, I don't know how you do what you do how you manage this empire, these, this whole conglomeration of what's got to be tough 
out there. You know, it's a competitive business. Mm-hmm. So thank you. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Well, it's a pleasure. You know, I, I try not... We, boy, man, we walk a fine line between promoting what I've learned to do with my feet and trying to stay humble. It's mm-hmm. really hard because I was raised in a very humble home. And, mm-hmm. you know, I try not to upplay this too much, but then how do you downplay it? It's, it, it is true. It's quite something. Everybody has a story to tell. And it's, Everybody. And the best teachers are storytellers. Sometimes we tell our own stories and sometimes we tell other people's stories. I love telling your story, which is what this is all about. I mean, you and I have sat down and had these conversations, mm-hmm. but there wasn't a microphone. No. Now we got a mic and I get to share this with everybody. And I was just fascinated the first time that I got to meet you and I booked you without hearing you speak. I right. just trusted that that was the right decision and I was right. I was just fascinated watching you. I was watching you sign books with your feet. <laughs> I was watching you play the piano and play drums and text. And yeah, the, you told me the only downside is that we're here at Disneyland and uh, they won't let you ride some of the rides because you can't hold on to the. It would be interesting video though if I wore one of those wearable cameras as I'm flying off the roller coaster go. at yeah. 40 miles an hour. There you go. <laughs> there you go. I love it here though. Well, you know, I thank you so much for agreeing to doing this. I love getting these stories out there. So, you know, Alvin, go ahead and tell us your story. And, and by the way, educate me on, on how to pronounce thalidomide. I don't how thalidomide. Thalidomide. Okay, so that's it's what, it's a big word. It is either you know the word or you don't know the word. Mm-hmm. Why it enters the conversation is, I think you talk about people that are amputees. I'm not an amputee. That's significant. People that lose their limbs, whether it's in in service or through illness, whatever, you are changing your life. I've never known any other life. But why thalidomide itself is a big part of the discussion, from my perspective, is it was a drug-induced deformity. And the drug was given to pregnant women in the early 1960s to combat nausea and morning sickness in a time when pharmaceuticals were so new Nobody bothered asking the question, what happens to the baby inside the mom if the mom takes pills for anything? Well, now we know better. Right. Well, we didn't know that in 1960 when I was born, so my arms literally did not grow, but the rest of my body is just fine. How how many children were born that way? The figures vary depending on who you listen to, but the acknowledged estimate is around 25,000 around the planet. Here's the fact that I find funny, and I'm not sure ha-ha funny at all. It was never licensed in the United States. The reason that's important is because the experts acknowledge that had it been sold here, like it was sold in Canada where I grew up, uh, you might have had 25,000, maybe 250,000 deformities. And I hope you don't take this the wrong way because of the modern pharmacology of the United States. It likes its drugs. Right. It just never was licensed. So there was maybe about 20 born in the United States from clinical trials because they were trying to get the FDA to approve it. It never was. So, you know, it's history. But, of course, the bigger difference for my life is because it happened at birth. I've never known anything else. Right. And that's going to come out in this story. Yeah. So um, go ahead and just tell us your your story. I've got lots and lots of questions. And this is one of those days where I wish masters uh, were video. Oh, yeah. So that people could see this. And, well, the and next, I, when, you, when you decide to do a master's video series, I'll, I'll be your okay, first guest. Okay, all right. 
Um, just so people know, how could they see video of you? And have you ever done videos of you like brushing your teeth? And you have those? I have. Are they posted? Um, Alvinlaw.com. Alvinlaw.com. And there's videos of yeah. you doing the YouTube what? stuff. To be quite honest with you, at this exact moment we're sitting here, I have a guy working on my YouTube channel. I okay. should have done that a long time ago. But I want you to imagine my dilemma. Uh, I'm not trying to be politically correct per se with my using my feet. But you can imagine, for some people, it may reek of bad taste. Look at him doing that with his feet. Look at him doing that with his feet. What's he trying to do? In fact, to be this is so funny. I hope you don't mind me being really honest about my comments today. But my favorite thing ever that happened was I was actually called, and I wrote, wrote about this on my blog, and it's also on my website. I'm not trying to promote this, but alvinlaw.com. You can read about this. I put the headline, breaking news, I'm a porn star. <laughs> and I got a lot of reaction, including a national radio audience in Canada on CBC Radio, which is like our PBS. Here's why. Because a sociology uh, PhD candidate at a rather left-wing university in Canada called people like me, who play the drums with their feet like I do, who play the piano, as you mentioned, like I do, they call it disability pornography because they don't believe that it properly represents the struggles of people with physical challenges. I mean, you know, you can't make this stuff up. Now, I understand that's a point of view, but I think that's the key to my life, as I've never, ever seen it that way. I don't see what I well, do Well, how, how would they expect that you would present yourself then? Uh, I think they... and I hide, uh, hide you away someplace? Perhaps, but I don't know about you. Uh, I have to really hold my breath when I'm around somebody who's a bit of an extreme activist about any cause. And I've met a ton of them in the field of disability. Yeah. And I understand why they don't like perhaps some of the things that I represent. But that's not who I'm here for. I'm, mm. I'm here to educate people that aren't kind of up to speed. You know, well, you told me once that your best audience are a bunch of little kids oh, because yeah. they ask the questions. Absolutely. You know, where are your arms? And my, yeah. my little daughter who's going to be here in, a, in an hour. She can't wait. I can't she wait. knows who you are. She watched the... The video of you is for the, the Paralympics, right? Yeah. Uh, you guys watch that. It's phenomenal. It's from the Rio Olympics, yeah. the Paralympics. Yeah. And it's, it's it, great, the whole it? video is phenomenal. Phenomenal. But the video opens. It's a music video, and it opens with Alvin playing the drums. Yeah, isn't that cool? Oh, I have to admit, it was way cool. Uh, to be a part of that? I can't imagine. Yeah. You know the coolest part, though? What? We recorded it at Abbey Road Studios. In? In London. Oh Where the Beatles recorded, Jeez. for God's sakes. We have a picture of me and three of the other band members. There was 12 of us walking across the, the crosswalk, right? That's Outside incredible. of Abbey Road. That's great. Here was the best part. Everyone involved in that project treated us like what we were. Hmm. Musicians. Right. Not handicapped musicians, not disabled musicians. Hmm. And that was a big part of the Paralympic movement. Still is. That these people are athletes, not handicapped. Right. So I'm going to read a bit of this. So yeah. not only did Alvin learn to use his feet for hands, he has succeeded in every venture of his life, from playing music, being a disc jockey, <laughs> uh, being on an advertising executive, managing a government disability. Uh, he's been a winner in almost everything that you've done. Jeez, uh, you, you had an attempt to be a member of Saskatchewan legislation in 1986, but uh, you didn't win that. So you got to lose once in a while here. Yeah, it taught me a lesson. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Which we'll talk about that. 
So 35 years on stage, five continents around the world, over 2 million people that you have stood in front of sharing your story. You're a certified speaking professional, Canadian Speakers Hall of Fame in 2009, honorary fellow of the Pro Speakers Association of the United Kingdom. So incredible things that you've accomplished. And I really like this one, which we'll talk about too. The fact that you have been involved in lots of charitable organizations and, and uh, philanthropy efforts, which has mounted into raising over $200 million for charity. So congratulations. Thanks, man. That's yeah. my favorite. Where's Darlene? She didn't come with you this trip? <laughs> uh, Darlene is my wife. Uh, we are celebrating 25 years of marital bliss this July. Congratulations. Thanks, man. You know, can I just talk about that for one second and we'll yeah. talk about it more later because yeah. I want to talk about it more later if you don't mind? Yeah. She changed my life. Hmm. Not because she was the first one that I ever had a relationship with. That's why I've got a kid. Um, she changed my life because she pushed me as hard as my parents pushed me. Hmm. That's where all this comes from, man. You know, I, I'm not trying to be humble about it. All those accomplishments, that was just a mindset. Hmm. And the mindset really was quite simple. If I can overcome this, I can overcome that. If I can overcome that, I can overcome this. It was just a, it's like a domino thing. And my wife is like that. But why she's not here is because she runs our operations. Hmm. And hard to believe that a, a speaker could have an operation I'm not Tony Robbins big, but you know what? We're pretty successful, and she has to stay home to just handle stuff. Um, also, to be quite frank, traveling takes its toll, man. It has become not so much fun at 57 it's years old brutal. as it was when I was 40. Right. So she's smart enough to know, no, I'll just stay home, thanks. Right. <laughs> but get out of here. Go earn Go a living away. for us. Haven't you been home long right, enough? Right, yeah. Well, when you were born in 1960... Uh, you are given zero chance of any quality of life. So just tell us the story. I think that's part of what I really think is important to state is, thank God we're not in 1960 anymore. You know, people like me were just given no value. It wasn't malicious. It was, you know, you look at a guy without arms or somebody, like you said, without legs. Oh, you don't have the same value. That was then. Well, now in 2018, we don't think that way anymore. I take no credit, but I will be honest about this too. I feel like I've helped to change the mindset, to change the perception through not only talking to six-year-olds, but through talking to 66-year-olds, not only talking to salespeople, but talking to prisoners. I've been in, in prisons, I've been talking in rough neighborhoods, in you know, I tell you what, I think what's funny about this, I probably relate most to people who have their own challenges. In fact, I think a lot of very successful people that I've met in my time, I'm not sure how they feel about me, but it's almost like they don't want to get too close to me for whatever reason. But I seem to be able to bond with those people that have had their own struggles. Mm -hmm. I guess it's just a like-mindedness of life. Right. Not that people who are successful haven't had challenges, but, you know, it's all relative. So what were your parents told when you were born? What did the doctors say to your parents? So can I answer that in a crafty way? Absolutely. Which parents? That's right. You uh, were adopted. I was homeless at five days of age, quite literally and not melodramatically. I wasn't homeless in that I was living on the street, but I had no family. On the fifth day of my life, my birth family were in a meeting my birth mom saw me for maybe 30 seconds when I was born. And they rushed me out of the delivery room 
whatever it was called back in 1960. Basically, they said he's not going to make it. That was their theory. Um, a lot of the thalidomide babies they called us weren't just missing limbs. And by the way, every one of them has a bit of a unique body shape because it affected each individual separately. But the more common imagery of thalidomide babies in those days were they would have arms, but they would be short. Not like a little person, but their arms might have grown just to their elbows and then they would have a hand there. And then the hand was often deformed by missing fingers. The drug didn't allow all the parts to grow. But this was 1960 for another reason. There was no information. So when I was born in a little farming town in the middle of the prairies in Canada, you can imagine people freaked out. So did my family. So my family, you know, I had no idea who they were. I never knew their story. So all I know is from the time that I have a memory, I lived with foster parents. And my mom was 55 years old and my dad was 53 years old. And they took me in, mostly my mom. My dad was an 18-hour-a-day service manager for a farm implement dealership. Mom was just into this. She just loved taking care of unwanted children. And I wasn't the only one. There were several foster kids who came to live in our house, but I was the only one that stayed. It it, it just became a full-time job. But I think why I asked you which parents, because isn't it interesting, I find it interesting, how one couple see this as absolutely nothing, and another couple come along, and because of their different perspective... They didn't see me sitting here with you looking out at this beautiful scenery. They just thought, you know what? We've got a job to do. We're foster parents. Our responsibility is to make sure he can take care of himself. But I often joke, this was 1960. She couldn't exactly Google no arms, right? Siri, what do we do? I mean, really? This was all just (laughs) flying by the seat of their pants. And they they did good, huh? Yeah, they did. Yeah. So what connected them to you? Well, you know, one of my favorite stories about that is the community we lived in was a small town called Yorkton, Saskatchewan. Everybody there had a very farm-like, prairie kind of attitude. You know, and I don't know what that looks like to people that are listening to this, but it's a bit of a stereotype. But my dad was very well known in the community because he was a service manager. My mom was very well known in the community because she was so involved in her church and in, you know, Legion and and Eastern Star and all these different things she was part of. So when she took me in, they did a lot of this on their own, but it was like the community was there. They were supporting me. And the irony of this is most of my mom and dad's friends were already empty nesters. Because remember, people mostly had kids in those days in their early 20s. So a lot of these friends of my parents were retired or older. They had time. So I was in this cocoon that was wonderful. Mm. But I think the most important thing they taught me was there's nothing wrong with this. That was way ahead of its time. So you, that's all you knew, that's all you heard was there's nothing wrong with this. I would go into a restaurant, and I tell a funny story about this. Of course, you've heard the funny story. But way before I tell the funny story, I was going out to restaurants eating with my feet when it just wasn't socially acceptable. But because it was this little town, they went, oh, that's just Alvin. It was the strangers that would be in the restaurant that would be kind of losing it, right? Like, what's he doing? There was no question it was a different era. So, yes, there were struggles. I'm not Mm going to sugarcoat it. But it was really beneficial for me to grow up in that environment. And, again, I think my parents, they weren't activists. They weren't trying to prove a point. You know, when it was time to go to school, I, I went to school. There wasn't a question of whether I was smart enough. 
And those people involved in my upbringing, teachers, people in the community, they learned from that too. I think that was the biggest thing. To what age did you live in that exact same community where you were born and where they took you in? 18 years old, 1978. So the whole community knew you. This is Alvin. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. And even more importantly, because we were so involved in the community, I wasn't just taking from the community. I was Hmm. giving to the community. What do you mean by that? I was involved in volunteerism at an early age. I was involved in going to things to help out. I was around my parents who volunteered for just about everything. They taught me that charity is not sympathy. Charity is caring about your community. That sounds so corny to say it, but it's true. So you learn that. I'm writing it down. It's not corny, but saying that. But you know what I mean? That's what I learned. That became part of my foundational belief system. And I think that's why I speak. I I don't speak because I couldn't find a job. I speak because I feel like I'm doing what my parents talked about constantly. Make a difference out. You keep on referring. Oh, well, that was back in 1960. Things are different today. Yes and no. I mean, today there are parents who are kicking their kids out of the house for whatever reason, because they're they're different or they're not measuring up. They're yeah. still happening today. Yeah. How, how much are you part of that dialogue? I think my actions speak to everything. I mean, isn't it funny the stuff that sticks with you? I don't know how many years ago this was. I was in a airport food court, having a hamburger with my toes, just minding my own business, flying somewhere, don't know where. Tap on the shoulder, I look up, there's a pilot standing there, and a really good-looking pilot, just standing there with tears in his eyes. And I, I said, can I help you? He goes, just wanted to thank you for the lesson in humility. I think what I try to put out there is, this is the real deal, not because I can do these things with my feet, but if I can do these things with my feet... There's got to be something else going on in there. So when I talk about attitude, not because I'm a speaker, but I think attitude does actually make a difference. It isn't just a cliche or some kind of of platitude. That's what I was always taught growing up. And and it was more about in 2018, you know, I got to be honest, I'm concerned about 2018. I think it's, it's not to be too stereotypical here. But it seems to me with a lot of the stuff that's going on, everybody seems to be turning the mirror on themselves instead of looking through the looking glass. And what I mean by that metaphor is when we're doing nothing but looking out for ourselves, we forget there's 7 billion other people on this planet that we need to be careful of. Here's a really, really perfect example that I think your listeners would appreciate. It's a story, but I think it's, it to me signifies one of the most important elements that I can relate to. And that was, and I'll make it quick, it was, you've heard the school story, right? Where in 1966, there just happened to be a school right across the street from our house. I mean, how did that happen? It wasn't there when I moved in, in 1960. It was built in 1963. So by 1966, it was right there. By so the time and, you're ready to go to school, here it at, is. Not kindergarten, grade one in those days, right? Right. Mom and dad were not stupid. They knew what was going on. They were involved in the medical world because I had to go to clinics they put artificial arms on me when I was three. We'll get to that later. Mom and dad didn't. The doctors did. But I go across the street to sign up for school, just like all my neighborhood friends that I've been playing with since I was three. And the school says, oh, he needs to go across town to the crippled kids' school, using the vernacular of the time. And mom and dad said, yeah, we've heard about that, but we live across the street. Is there something missing here? And, of course, the school says, well, yeah, but we don't do that. 
And my dad says, no kidding. We don't do this either. This is new for both of us. How about we figure out a way for him to come here across the street and we'll work out all the little details as we go along. Mm. That's a very nice story. Mm. But here's why it's important. Man, I have, to, I have to contain myself once in a while when I get emotional about this. Who said we all have a right to stuff? I'd love to know where that started. When you have no arms and a day like that happens in your life, your parents start to say, be thankful. This is a privilege. Education is a privilege. It's not a right. You know, having a home over your head is a privilege, not a right. That we took you home from the hospital, that's a privilege. See what I mean? It's just a different mindset. Hmm. And it's a little preachy, but I don't care. Because if people could think more like that, I think we'd have a better world. So take this back. How did your parents teach you? I mean, obviously they didn't coddle you. No. They didn't say, oh, sweetheart, I'll brush your teeth for you. I'll feed you. I'll bathe you. I'll do everything for you. Obviously they didn't do that. What did well, they actually do? they did a bit of it. There's an awful ironic thing that happened in my life that all of this independence that was pushed on me, I still couldn't go to the bathroom myself till I was 14 years old, um, including all of the fun stuff. Mm -hmm. um, teenage life kind of made me a little bit cringy about mom taking me to the bathroom. So that was a big part of my life. So yeah, there, my wife likes to joke, the first time we went out for dinner with my parents when we met in 1991, I, I was divorced and had a, a little boy. And I brought my wife home to meet her potential in-laws. Who knew that this was going to happen? But it was quite funny. We go out for dinner, and uh, my dad reaches over and cuts my steak. Well, I can cut my own steak, thank you very much. So some of it was a little bit like you'd think, but it was more the... It wasn't about the physical element of helping me with things. I knew I'd need that. It was letting me struggle, fail, and even experience pain. Oh, my God. Can you imagine that? I'm being a little sarcastic now. Mm -hmm. We've taken that away from our kids. Yeah. We don't want them to hurt. Duh. I don't want my kid to hurt either. But who's supposed to teach them about hurt? Mm. Parents. That's how I see it. So that's what mom and dad did. If I fell, I fell on my face. It hurt. But I sure learned not to do that anymore. Mm. And I don't know what would have happened had they not done that. But it was a consciousness that they had. It was an old school consciousness. It was of a couple that were born and raised in the early part of the 1900s, you know, struggled through the Depression. Dad was a World War II veteran, saw action. It changes people, either makes them more bitter and negative or more appreciative and grateful. Well, you say that you think it's a big mistake when we start smoothing the path for our children. We start making it easy for them. I'm, I'm a parent. You know, I'm, my gosh, the first time that somebody made her cry at school, I'm ready to go beat up a five-year-old. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know what? Mom and dad, they, they had to put up with that too. You know, I, I find it funny. We, we, we talk about bullying like it's a, a new thing in the last 15 years. <laughs> bullying is a human condition, and of course it happened in our neighborhoods. And, and I often like to joke that I'm not really very good at talking about bullying because my solution was to throw rocks at kids. <laughs> With your feet. With my feet. Yeah, I hit a kid right in the forehead once from like 50 feet. It shut him up. I mean, it was, but you can't say that. You just You did. can't say that. Okay. That was the mindset though, again. Right. Dad especially. Dad was six feet, three inches tall, 235, 40 pounds, and was an ex-professional heavyweight boxer. Okay. Dad could have cleaned the clock of anybody who challenged me or made fun of me, but dad didn't do that. Dad taught me to fight my own fights, but not 
by revenge with physical harm, except for the rocks. Right. So how many times growing up did you fall into mom's arms, woe is me, why me, this isn't fair, mom? And what was her response back to that? You know, it's funny. I had the perfect pair. My dad was the hard ass, and my mom, I love how you put that, mom had the big hug. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say every day, probably not even every week, but, you know, growing up, here was the thing, though. It wasn't at school. School figured itself out. It was when I was out in public. It was when I was traveling. It was when I was going. Hospitals were the worst because I had to go to hospitals, um, usually for six weeks at a time, twice a year. For um, what? To use artificial arms. Okay. They believed, and there's, there's a linkage here, by the way, if you're wondering where I'm going with this. Um, that's when I felt sorry for myself the most. Why do I have to leave my friends? Why do I have to go to the hospital? Why do I have to wear these stupid arms? It was all an experiment at the time. They didn't know any better. The, the, they felt that prosthetics would be the key. If you're missing a limb, you replace it. That's the considerable wisdom there. But what if you've never had it? That was always something they never wanted to listen to. That's when I felt most sorry for myself. If you think about this, I was taught not just platitudes, that I was not handicapped. Whatever the terminology at the time was. That was, a, again, a mindset that I, I don't even ever remember thinking any different. So why do I have to go to a hospital? That, that was the worst. I was very, very accepting of the fact I was going to get looked at. I was going to get stared at. I was going to get made fun of. That's just that came with the territory. Right. I'm not trying to brush it over, but whatever. You know, It's still that way to this day. But you know, here we are, again, one more thing about the difference between then and now. We're way better now. We're a much more accepting society. That's what makes me uncomfortable with a lot of the platitudes that are going on around the new discussion about Me Too. Not because it's not something we need to talk about, but we all need to get along. And if we all start trying to serve ourselves, we're going to be in big trouble. Yeah. So what were some of the most difficult tasks? Was brushing your teeth more difficult than taking yourself to the bathroom? Or was it bait? What, dating girls? What was the most difficult task? When I became a young man, I believe that was the toughest time because I was struggling with my own identity, whatever that looked like. Remember, in those days, um, we didn't talk about sexuality. It was one of those taboo subjects. So, you know, did I ever feel like I might be gay? No, I liked gals. But I think what bothered me was they didn't really see me as being a catch. That's why Darlene is so special. That was the toughest time. Trying to grow up, trying not to be mama's boy. Yeah, I had to go to the bathroom with my mom. That was a big part of what changed it. Going to the bathroom. That's the hardest thing I had to learn to do. Mm. Dress myself. I mean, I've challenged my audiences before. You've heard it. You know, I dare the audience to think about this right now. Next time you have a chance to go to the washroom, try not using your hands. Right. It sounds weird to ask that question, but just try it. <laughs> now, people say, well, no, that would be impossible. See, I think that's where the line gets crossed for right. me. Mm -hmm. It's not impossible. Nothing's impossible per se. It, it sounds funny to put it that way, but I think it's definitely a mindset. And my mom and dad, you know, that was going back to what we talked about earlier. Part of them was really good at pushing me. Part of them was unfortunately a little bit treating me like I needed the help. But I know mom and dad often talked about this. By 18 years old, you better be ready to live on your own. Now, you know why they said that? It wasn't because of an 18-year-old I was going to get kicked out of the house. 
Let's remember, mom and dad were 55 and 53 when I was a newborn, so do the math. They just aged. I was lucky to have them until mom was uh, 89 and dad was 94. Mm -hmm. So they lived a long time. But that was also part of my my biggest struggle was the reality. What do I do? What do I do when I'm 18? What kind of job am I going to have? What kind of career? That mindset scared me the most of anything. What was the first job that you had? I was a DJ. Okay, we got the DJ. Yeah. Actually, I was a news announcer in the summer between first and second year college where I studied broadcasting. So I read the news. That was recommended by my guidance counselor who said, Alvin, as amazing as you are with your feet, I think you have to figure out something that you could do that would make sense and allow you to be competitive in the job market, which again is another mindset. I didn't expect to be taken care of. I think that's huge. Not that being taken care of is a bad thing. It's a personal choice, sometimes not a choice. I never thought about it. I never ever thought about that I would need to be taken care of, whether it was through social assistance or or welfare or any of those things. I know some people struggle, but I just couldn't see myself ever being in that situation. You brought it up a couple of times, the, the idea of having prosthetics or not having prosthetics. And so that was an experiment with you, sounds like over and over again over the years. And what's your feeling about it now? Mom used to say, Alvin, you are doing the world a favor by suffering through this exercise. You and I know... Of being fitted for prosthetics. Yeah, the first pair were made of wood and metal. Really? And they were attached to a quarter-inch thick molded plastic shell that didn't breathe. So if you put that on your upper body, this is 1963 were the first pair... They didn't have electronics, so they had these locking gears in the elbows that you would bounce your body. You had to literally move your whole upper body in a kind of a swinging motion like you're hitting a golf ball, and it would move the arm up into a position and it would lock. Then if you wanted to open the hook, which if people want to visualize this, it's exactly like a pirate hook. So the the hooks were controlled by this cable that ran up my arm down from my shoulder to a strap on each leg that held the cable tight. If you wanted to open the hook, once you've bounced your body in the golf swing, then you'd pull on the hook by bending over and that would open the hook and and, uh, to stand up to close it. So this was all at three years old. Uh, I had absolutely no idea why, except that's how my parents, they were amazing. I I mean, I've said that so many times, I don't say it because it's a nice thing to say. Mom and dad had this way of saying to me, Alvin, this is part of the gig, if I can put it in that term, right? Right. See, all these things that fit together, I don't know if this was all destiny, fate, you picked the word, whether this was all meant to happen the way that it did. I don't even know how to feel about it. I was one of maybe three foster kids in the entire Canada. See, here was the funny thing about this. There was an immense amount of guilt experienced by particularly the moms who were given the pills, who believed they deformed their children. Okay, this was way before we thought about suing drug companies. <laughs> the foster kids, it's funny because each and every one of us, the three of us, I think one of them's dead now, but we kind of had a similar vision of ourselves. Because we were in foster care, we didn't have that same experience with our moms feeling guilty. My mom certainly didn't feel guilty. But because we were foster kids, and in my case, I know this to be a fact, I don't know about the other two, I was actually a ward of the government. I was literally owned by the government. Mom and dad were simply caring for me. 
So when the government in Canada, because we have universal health care, said, oh, he has to go to this clinic for an observation. We want to put him in front of this lecture theater of 100 doctors. We want to send him to this, this clinic to check these new arms out. Mom and dad basically said, okay. In fact, there was a letter in 1966, I still have it in my file, that said from a doctor, Mrs. Law, obviously you're not making Alvin wear his artificial arms as much as he should. If you're not careful, we can remove him from your home and give him to another foster home who hey, will. Wait, and you were how old at that time? Six. At what time? What, did you get adopted at some point where they... My foster parents became my only parents. They actually didn't adopt me. We use the word because it's a better way to explain it. I was a ward of them until 18. At 18, everything was official, but we changed my name just for expediency and also because of confidentiality. In 1960, when I was given up, I think a lot of people are shocked by that. I don't think we should be shocked by that. When, don't forget, this was in an era. Oh, boy, this is a sensitive material. Remember when we used to take teenage girls who got pregnant in high school and send them away and take their kids? Yeah. We did that. Well, you know, we've learned. That's another thing that's changed in society. So I wasn't, you know, people are shocked by it in, in the new life that we live nowadays, that I was given up so easily. Yeah. I, I was never shocked. What surprised me was somebody would actually keep me. And boy, did I hit the jackpot. Yes, you did. I did. So were you in touch with other thalidomide children? Nope. Not, 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 nope. Well, you said that there was two or three others right. that were also put into right. foster care. Right. So at what point did you connect with them? That would have been around 1989. Oh, so. What happened was, because of confidentiality, they couldn't tell my parents anything about my birth family. This so you still know nothing about your birth well, family? Well, I, I do. But you do now. Yeah, I love being okay. cryptic about this. <laughs> all right, all right. No, I do. 1988, an organization in Canada, this is not a long story, by the way, called War Amps. They are an organization of veterans who got together in about 1950 to try to help other disabled veterans of World War II. It actually turned into a nonprofit, and their chair was very familiar with the thalidomide babies because nobody else in the country knew as much about deformity uh, caused by amputation or war injuries than war amps. So they worked in collaboration with the government to try to figure out the best way to handle these kids in the 60s and 70s. They didn't really agree on any of this because the government had different ideas. So they put it aside, and then middle 80s, this guy just wouldn't leave it alone. He said, I, must, I can't leave this alone. There's, there's 100 Canadians out there that were affected by this. I, I'd love to know how they're doing. So he actually struck up a task force. And I got a call out of the blue saying, would you like to be a member of this task force? I said, why me? Well, we've seen you on television. You're a celebrity in Saskatchewan. We've heard from somebody in Manitoba who's a one of our task force members who recommended you because you're very well spoken. You have you know college experience and you're educated, so we can include you in part of this. When I got involved in the task force, we were not only looking at how everybody in Canada was doing with thalidomide-related handicaps, but we were trying to move forward towards getting some kind of compensation because as opposed to what everybody thinks, none of us ever got any money. None of it. The drug company got away with it. There was no litigation. By the time we all got organized, it was too late. So what we did as a result of not being able to be litigious was we said, well, let's form a kind of a club, really, in, in many ways. And that was the Thalidomide Victims Association of Canada. Mm. And it became a sort of a self-help resource for anybody in Canada affected by this. And that's when I eventually would meet a couple of these people. We actually had our first convention 
Can you imagine that? A convention of thalidomide disabled kids, and now many, adults. How many, how many were there? 54. Wow. Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, 1989. It was creepy. Because imagine, other than in the hospitals, I'd see the occasional deformed child. I was pretty much out there flailing away on my own, right? right? And right. that's another thing. Without the internet, what did we do? We had no comparisons. There were no stories. There, were no, there was no resource. That's what made my mom that much more of a genius. But I think because this is really important to add here, the medical community tried to fix me. The law household embraced me just the way I was born. Hmm. That's hugely different. You said that kids who were raised by their mothers, so the mothers that did not give them up but lived with the guilt, how were they different? Well, to be absolutely blunt, in our study in 1989-90 when we were working on, on all of the materials, we uncovered 17 suicides wow. by moms. They just couldn't cope. Every time they'd look at their child, it was reminded to them what they did. By the way, I, I'm guessing this is not unique to thalidomide. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard this about a lot of moms in particular who carry their children and then uh, have a deformed child or, or an autistic child or a mentally handicapped child, whatever. You know, use the words. I, I, I'm not judging them. All I know is, to answer your earlier question, because of this study, because of my new information, and especially those suicides, that one bugged me. My wife, she at the time was, was just a girlfriend, basically said, you know what, Alvin, you've got to go meet and find your birth mom. You know, who knows how she's doing? I said, well, I don't want to find her. I have no interest in finding her. And that wasn't, by the way, uh, a jerk statement. It wasn't about, oh, I, I don't want to find her because I'm mad. I had a great family. Mm-hmm. I had a great mom and dad. I was so happy. I didn't think I'd gain anything by meeting these people. If anything, it would be an uncomfortable thing that I didn't want to experience. Mm-hmm. But, you know, typical of my wife, because she's really good at this. She said, well, you know what? Fine. Be a man. This is where genders do matter, I guess. I'm a woman. I've never had a child. My wife can't have kids. But she says, I can only imagine how she would feel you showing up saying, I'm cool. I'm okay. I'm good. Thanks, you know. And by the way, thanks for giving me away. Who would say that? I said those words. I said, and by the way, I'm not mad. I've never been mad. I've never been bitter. I've never blamed you. Well, I know for a fact, because I have two siblings, that it changed my birth mom's life. Her name's Sophie. Um, Just to put an exclamation point on this, my birth father, Peter, they live in... Small town Canada still, Melville, Saskatchewan, Canada. Peter passed away in 1982 directly because of alcoholism, directly because he started to drink heavily the day that they came home without me. Wow. So that it took its toll. Wow. Absolutely. Hmm. So finish the whole idea of prosthetics then. I think the medical community was trying to do something The government of Canada at the time did not want to get into any kind of legal situation in terms of giving compensation for really what they did wrong was allow the drug to be licensed when it was really never, they never proved it. It was just, okay, this is new, let's try this. So what the government did was they funded rehabilitation hospitals because they decided that the prosthetics just needed to get better and better and better. And by the way, the first pair, they went from being the mechanical ones with the golf swing to electric. So now they had little switches in the shoulders that I'd push with my little tiny button shoulder. I don't have shoulders, if people can't see this, but I have an odd-looking body in that I'm, I'm a bit narrow-shouldered because 
the shoulders aren't there, but I can move my shoulder bones. There's a little tiny thing. There are no digits, no fingers. I use that little pokey part of my shoulder to push the buttons on an internal device, I guess. It had three switches and then four eventually to push the buttons to move the arms. Mm. But what's funny about it is I actually cooperated because I really believed they would take me from my parents. So it wasn't really, I wasn't going along with the flow like people think. I was going because I just couldn't stand up to the idea of challenging the doctors. Well, that was another good thing that came out of my adolescence. Finally just sat him down one day when I was 15 and I said, do you realize how stupid this is? You know, do you have any idea? And of course, you can say that when you're 15 because they just call you a precocious teenager. But I honestly believe that the one doctor, I'll never forget the look on his face. You can't see this, people in Radio Land, but I actually talk with my feet. I gesture with my feet. You've seen that, right, Wynn? Yeah. I was doing whatever I was doing and I'm doing right now, just moving my foot back and forth on this doctor's table. I'll always remember this. He kept looking at my foot and he kept saying, he says, but you really don't mind using your feet? No, because they're my hands. Mm. I know that sounds nice, but they're my hands. That, that's why it's such a natural act. So with today's technology and everything that we know today, if they came to you and said, Alvin, we have it. We have the prosthetics for you. Would you say yes or no? No. Huh. It's not the authentic me. Mm. Right? It isn't. Ask my wife that question, Win, because can you imagine... The first time we went out, <laughs> we're sitting next to each other, and she actually held my foot. Hmm. I, don't, I don't know why she did that. I, I, I get teary-eyed thinking about it myself. There is, there is, I can touch things. There's a tactile feeling. Those arms. I used to say, wearing artificial arms would be like petting your dog with a stick. Hmm. Neither party is having a good time. Right. With my feet, even though they might be a little disgusting to some people who don't like feet, I get that. They're just such a natural thing. But here was the key going back to what my mom, especially my mom, you know, she just reminded me all the time that beauty is not about, you know, the machismo. I know for men in particular that follow the machismo factor. I just was never like that. I'm probably more like a female in my constitution than anything else. But that was a big part of my development. What is nowadays the most challenging element about living without arms? Physically, there's nothing. Nothing. I can't even think of anything. I think it's all an emotional challenge today. Again, I I don't want to put too uh, fine a point on this, but maybe I'm aging. Maybe I'm getting to be crotchety, but I I just get, get frustrated with excuses. That's got nothing to do with the physical... from yourself or from other people? Other people. Other people. You know, maybe it's just because I have less patience. But maybe it's because I I just think to myself, why is this so hard? I don't know. I Maybe I just can't relate. I know the kids nowadays, as my dad used to say, <laughs> I, I put that in on purpose. I love the kids nowadays. But they seem to have a lot more struggles too. And right. I'm not sure why. I, I can guess why, but I don't know. Well, I've heard you say that, that you want to raise the bar because if we raise the bar, we have better people and a better planet. What, what do you mean Isn't by that, all of that? Well, let's use me one more time because that kind of works for me. I, I, I well, like this, to This is your show interview, people. by the way. Okay. 
But I think I'm a really good example, without sounding too full of myself, of saying, okay, I've got to change my mindset. So I don't want to be dependent on government service. That's just me and my opinion. If I don't raise my own bar by, in my case, going to college to study broadcasting, if I don't raise my own bar by realizing that there's other things I could be doing, but even more importantly, if we go back even into my high school life, you know this is probably the, the most important element of my life outside of what we've been talking about so far is my music. When I started playing music, I was just as lousy as anybody else. But I got a bit of a chip on my shoulder. So not all of this was born out of, you know, uh, warm and fuzzy. Some of this was born out of seriously struggling to figure out who the hell I was, right? My, my, my good friend Tim Story says that people <laughs> think that their opportunity or is going to come down to them in a Tiffany box, a beautiful blue box with a bow on it. And <laughs> here's your life lesson. And it's not that way. No. It's life lessons that are here to piss you off. Yes. In fact, you know, looking back on it now, I can't think of a knockdown punch when I was young. I, I had a few hits. We all do, okay? But I was so believing in my own sentiments about this, I had a, something to prove. I wanted to prove not only to the medical community, not even to the world at large, but to myself. Can I actually have a job? Can I make a living? Can I actually raise a family? Can I be a breadwinner in old-fashioned thinking? Let's remember, I, I was old-fashioned taught, right? The traditional roles. But more than anything, when I got to college, that blew my mind. Because I didn't realize how much I'd already accomplished. It just never occurred to me. I just thought, you know, hey, I'm doing what I got to do. Well, people would watch me play the drums or play the piano. And, of course, my original instrument was the trombone. All of the effort I put into playing those instruments was to serve me. Right? I wasn't playing, uh, other than trombone, in a band. Uh, but I sat in the basement and practiced. You know, what does Malcolm Gladwell talk about? Probably didn't make it up, but he talked about it. The 10,000 hours? 10,000 hours. That's what I did. Yeah. 10,000 hours of practicing my music to serve myself. But as a result, I raised my own bar. So I come out of high school not thinking, I'm never going to make it. I came out of high school thinking, what am I going to make it at? It's a different mindset. So that's what happens. When you raise your own bar, you become a better person. You, know, you should know this. You're teaching young people how to be better dressing hair. That's the hair part. To me, that's the least important thing you're teaching these people. That's just a vehicle. Exactly. That's the excuse we're Correct. using. So this is my, see, when you get around an organization like this, that's why I love your organization. I'm not just saying this. I love any organization that says to its people, we have expectations of you to improve, to grow, and to get better. Because when you get better, the whole industry gets better. It sounds so warm and fuzzy, doesn't it? But it's such a great idea. When we start to lower the bar, then we have problems. Because then we're actually allowing a negative energy to infiltrate what has to be positive. And, and it's actually energy. It's, it's, there's an electronic system inside our body that responds to a negative versus a positive. And I don't know about you, but you ever get around someone you're around it for 30 seconds, it was like 25 seconds too long because they oh got nothing gosh. good to say. Yeah. I mean, right, I get it. Sometimes I don't feel like I got anything good to say. But I can't hang around those people. No, I can't. just can't do it. They're like energy suckers. You, you should see me... Like stepping into a room where 
either the gossip is going on or it's just on TV. It's yeah. a negative reality show. I start to hyperventilate. Oh, like, yeah. like there's this physical, negative physical reaction that I have to listening to that. So let, let me give you a current example. This is my, one of my favorite new examples since we've already mentioned the video. So we go into England. I probably just made a huge jump here, but I think there's a connective tissue here. When I played the drums in the, we call it the Yes I Can band. That's what we called our band because the name of the song was Yes I Can yes, by I Sammy can. Davis, right? Oh, yeah. So when I go into England and I meet the rest of the band members, that blew my mind. Hmm. You know, my wife joked with me the first night. I couldn't put into words what I was feeling. You know what she said? I'm going to use a bad word now. She said, because you're usually the only gimp in the room. So <laughs> my wife said, in a humorous way. Right. And, but, but in a serious way, she was dead on. Well, well, tell us who the other band members were. Twelve members of the band, and okay. 13 actually, including me. Okay. Every one of them has a handicap. Okay. The bass player, playing stand-up bass in the video, one arm. The piano player, there's two of them. One is blind. She was awesome. The other is uh, literally not a thalidomide child because he's young, but he's got no hands. He's just got these little stumps. He plays his butt off. Everybody in the band had a physical challenge. Mm. Here's the funny part. I was the only member of the band playing the drums that was not making a living from music. Mm. So you get around a room full of people like that. So they were all making a living All making music. a living playing music, yeah. Wow. In one form or another. And by the way, how did they find these people? <laughs> Good question. Internet. They were all tracked down by the internet. YouTube videos. You? YouTube. Yeah, they found me. There was a YouTube video of you playing the drums? Absolutely. Yeah. If you'll allow me 30 seconds to explain this, this is a great story. Again, this is your interview, man. Okay. 2012, London, England hosted the Olympic Games, mm -hmm. the Summer Olympics. Summer Olympics are always accompanied with the Paralympics. Mm -hmm. Same with the winter ones coming up right away. Of course, there's a debate going on in the community whether they should all be together. But we'll leave that one aside. The fact of the matter is that the Paralympics are growing as a sport because people are still not sure how to feel about them, right? They're, some would say, well, they're not as competitive as regular sports. Want to bet? Yeah. This was the whole point. So Channel 4 London, which is the BBC affiliate, which is like our PBS, were given the broadcasting rights to the 2012 Games in England. And they put together a really good commercial campaign because the ticket sales were at like 20%. Well, by the time they did this huge campaign with not just television, but there's billboards and stories on radio... They actually sold out the Paralympics. Mm. So because of that, they got an increased injection for the 2016 Games in Rio. Mm. They spent millions on this shoot, this mm. three-minute video. And they brought in all these musicians. They found them. But what started the conversation before they even hired a musician was they were in a room. They had originally done the 2012 video. was a just 60 seconds, but it used a hip-hop soundtrack that was borrowed from a hip-hop artist from England. They showed some really good video connecting the dots to, you know, kind of a cool feel, people with disabilities competing in games. And uh, it was pretty effective. But this time around, somebody, while they were brainstorming, I wish you could make this stuff up, what if we hired a band that actually was handicapped? <laughs> and somebody else in the room said, are you trying to be funny? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. He goes, no, man. He goes, do you guys like check YouTube? Do you ever Google? Do you ever look on? He says, man, I saw this guy playing the drums with his effing feet. Hmm. And somebody in the room said, no. They literally Googled drummer without arms. I came up because I got a high Google search. 
And they're all sitting in this room in England going, holy crap, he's actually doing that. So the producers, the, the, the director, they basically said, let's just check this out. I was the first call they made. Could you come to England and be our drummer? Well, before you knew it, there was a whole band. But the point is, we went into Abbey Road Studios to cut the track. And the music director was actually a personal friend of George Martin, who was the Beatles' Fifth brain Beatle. trust, right? right? He was about as old school tough ass as you can get in the musical world. Now he has been dragged into this project to be the music director, and he has no idea how to feel. So he comes into the rehearsal, not sure how to feel, but he decides to kind of compensate by being a music director. So he wants to get rid of the band, rehearsal with the rhythm section. He sees that I've got a music stand with sheet music on it. He says, trying to be polite, he says, can you read that? I said, what, sheet music? I said, yeah. He says, you play the drums with your frickin' feet, and you can read sheet music. I said, yeah. He goes, 90% of the drummers that come into my studio can't read sheet music. What's with that? To my point, if I'm going to do something, I want to be the best I can at it. Can't be good at everything, but I can sure be excellent at the things that I do. That's what the point is. There's people listening to this. They have high dreams and high expectations of where they see themselves in a year or in 20 years. I will be that person. But the person that that they are right now doing whatever it is that they're doing right now, whether it's being a barista at a coffee shop or sweeping floors as an assistant in a salon, that wasn't their dream, but they're not doing their best at that. What's right. your message to that? Every day, we must wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and see the only person responsible for where we are. That's almost mean to say that, but it's what I believe. I don't care what the condition of a person's life is. I don't care where they're from. I don't care what they've struggled with. Those are incredibly important elements that have taken them to the path they are. But every single human being listening to this, this is what I learned. Only I can do it. But here's the most important thing. I cannot do this alone. I need to be around people that will not only support me, but you know what's funny? If you were to come and do a, uh, an interview cross-section of all the people that have made the biggest difference in my life, you would notice one consistency amongst all of them. They weren't nice about it. They kicked my butt. My parents kicked my butt. My mom kicked my butt. My friends kicked my butt. My wife kicks my butt. You know, and that sounds so crude, but it's exactly. And even today, if I, it's been, you know, a challenging couple of years in the speaking business. There's been some things that have gone on. There was one statistic I read about uh, in Forbes, actually, that said there were somewhere around 30,000 executives lost their job in the wake of the recession in 8 and 9, 2008, 2009. This wasn't in the Forbes study, but what I assumed was, what did those people do? So I'm thinking there's got to be like 25,000 brand new motivational speakers. <laughs> That's what they did. Right? Okay. That's what else were they going to do? They couldn't get a job. There was no jobs for CEOs. So they decided right. to go out on the circuit. Be consultants, be coaches, and be speakers. So let's be honest about this too. I do not have the kind of business acumen that some of our business leaders have that are on stage. I understand that. But that's not what I'm about. I'm, I'm about the human side of everything else. So it's been tricky. But, you know, every time I complain about it, my wife says, well, fine. Go out and sweep a floor at a Paul Mitchell hair salon. <laughs> I don't think that would work. How tempted are you or are you ever 
to blame. To oh, it's, I, it's the drug company's fault. It's society's fault, and and I can't do it. I, I wish I could. Boy, I sound good, don't I? Don't I sound almost perfect? Mm-hmm. I just can't do it. I can't. Maybe that's why I have struggled with people who blame. Uh, it's actually a fault of mine because I get a little judgmental. I can't do it. I just I don't see a the point because it wouldn't change the fact. But here's where it gets real honest. I love this. I wouldn't want to be any other way. I really wouldn't. This having no arms has given me things in my life. I mean, you can't know this. I just guess. Look what I've gotten to do. Look where I'm sitting, man. Look at the opportunities I've had in my life. You know, I've, I've always asked that question anytime I've interviewed anybody who was struggling with, well, struggling is the wrong word. No, challenge. Whose life experience is they've lost limbs sure. or I've interviewed people who have been paralyzed, quadruple amputees. I've interviewed all kinds of people. And I've always asked that question. If you could go back and change that moment, if you could change stepping on that bomb in Afghanistan, if you could change that car accident, would you go back and change that? And every time they've said no. Do you think they're lying? No. Good. Because I'm not lying. I know why people would think we're lying. I know people would say, well, you're going to say that. That's what you would say. Do you know what's funny? Um, Let's just do a quick segue. That's why Darlene fell in love with me. It wasn't the biceps. (laughs) I got the biceps. You got great pipes there, brother. Thank you. But honestly, my wife couldn't believe how authentic I was, how genuine I was for loving life. I mean, can you imagine the fun I've had? I've had so much fun in my life. Imagine when I was a DJ in Canada back in the early 80s, I was partying with bands, hanging out with superstars, basically just partying. I've had so many good times in my life because I think I, again, if you were to come and hang out with my friends, you'd notice they all kicked my ass. You would also notice they have another thing in common that has an incredibly high level of gratitude. Okay. It's just a common bond with all my friends. Which I, want to talk, I want to talk to you about that. Sure, sure. Um, First of all, before I ask you about gratitude, how much of this comes naturally to you? I mean, you seem like you're in a good mood. Does that come natural to you? Is that something that you have to work on? Oh, I think I have to work on it in the sense that the world can drag you down into the quagmire, right? It has an ability to do that. No, I, I really believe that if you grew up in our house, you grew up with that kind of mojo. And the proof of that, by the way, is not me. The proof of that is in my two older brothers. Okay. And they're older. I mean, I don't, I hope this doesn't sound bad. I have an 85-year-old brother. My parents, natural kids. See, okay. They had two kids, two boys, uh, born in the 30s. My two brothers are life lovers. They really are. I mean, you should see them. My oldest brother, John, was born in 1932. My other brother was born in 1938. To celebrate his 80th birthday, he took his entire family to Mexico. Now, how big is his family? Well, he's got eight kids. So the whole entourage that went to Mexico, minus <laughs> one child, was 32 people. And you should see the picture of them sitting on the beach at 80 years old, just having a blast with all of his children, all of his grandchildren. My brother John was a military man, but still, life lover. There's a key there somewhere. And I don't know what my mom and dad did. All I know is I was blessed to have them. Hmm. Let's talk about gratitude because I know that you're passionate about that. Mm -hmm. 
I just I love that word gratitude anyway. It's just it's just a mantra. People should have gratitude stitched on their pillow on their bed. They could have write it in lipstick on their bathroom mirror. Just the word gratitude. The opposite of gratitude for me is entitlement. And yes. entitlement is just such an ugly trait. Yeah, and I don't know that there was a one-off that caused all of this. I think it was a gradual. This is what I'm talking about, about the decline. See, I think a lot of people are under the impression that we have improved our society by sort of streamlining things for people, making it easier for people. I, I understand that. We're a much better world. Technology, I mean, everything is better in many ways. But I think the downside is, <laughs> oh, I hope this doesn't come out the wrong way. We tell our children they are the most special human being on the planet. That's true. But who gets the trophy? Okay, you, you can tell your beautiful daughter, because she is beautiful, you are the most beautiful, perfect child in the world. That's true. Now, when she goes to school, though, there's 27 others in the classroom that are the most perfect, beautiful child. Who wins the trophy? See what I mean? That's what entitlement does. So kids start to understand either they're going to go with this and become incredibly successful, or they're going to look at each other with disdain every time somebody gets first place. See, there's a lot of, when I talk about mysticism, it's just a word I like because it speaks to this sort of a new agey idea. You got to know Darlene a little bit, but you haven't lived with her like I have. She is a new age goddess in the sense that that's what she studies. She really believes in a lot of these new ideas and especially around energy. And I think the problem with this whole idea of entitlement is it doesn't have the right energy. You know, it's like, where's mine? Me, 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 me. And, and, and I understand that. We live in a very highly competitive world. But I also believe it's almost like Big Brother is the wrong expression, but we are being watched. And that's what I think is coming out of the wash now, is people think that anonymity or personal behavior will stay that way. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So if you're not being authentic and true to yourself, because I don't believe people are built that way. I don't believe that we are inherently built to believe we deserve things. And again, it goes back to a very simple idea that when you don't have any arms, you don't take a ton of things for granted. And that's why you're right. It, it was just a natural thought process that was taught in our home. We talked about some of your audiences and again, the audience of little kids. Because you said little kids will come up and they're very truthful. They're very blunt and honest in the curiosity they have about why don't you have any arms or where are they? Can you talk about that? Because I also want that to be a segue into how do you want people? Because people either stare or they look away. They're uncomfortable. They don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. or They think they're making you feel uncomfortable. They think that they're being polite to, to look the other way. But what would you like people to do? So, so talk um, about little kids first. Okay, well, first, I, I have to share that I, I thought I'd heard every possible story, every possible reaction in my life on this planet. And this is a really good example, and it's actually kind of a two-pronged example. Uh, where we were is, is, is really not that important, but I'm going to tell you, we were in Maui. And we were there for New Year's. And we were on New Year's Day... We drove the Maui Drive. And by the way, I should probably talk about that. I drive. Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't talked about that yet. I steer with my right foot on the wheel and my left foot on the gas. 
it's no special equipment in my car. Now that's important for lots of reasons, but just put that one aside for now. So we drove Maui. If anyone's been there, you know it's a big drive. It's a long drive. By the time we got to back, Hana. yeah, to Hana, came back, and all I wanted was a nice cold beer on the beach. In other words, I didn't feel like going out for a fancy dinner. I didn't want to put real clothes on. I just wanted to wear my shorts and my t-shirt and hang out with my wife. So we went to this little bar next to the hotel we were staying at, right on the beach, and it was raining. That's fine. But what we had to do was take cover from where we were, and we ended up grabbing this table that was free. It was like a two-hour wait for dinner, so we weren't about to wait two hours. We thought, let's just have a couple of drinks, maybe some appetizers. I reach up to grab the mug of beer with my right foot, if people can picture this, and I use my left leg to support the right foot. Then I put it up to my mouth and I drink. There was a table of about 15 people next to us, and we had just gotten into their space. We didn't join their table, but it was also sectioned off. So there was the adults, there were teenagers, and then there were little kids. And the little kids were at the little kids' table with grandma and one of the moms. One of them saw me and the look on their face. If you picture the look on a child's face when they see something, even at five, six years old, it's complicated because they don't know what's wrong and they don't know how to feel. But body language is everything, right? So they just walked right over because this is what they do. And they always say, what happened to you? Or where's your arms? Why are you doing that? This time I'm sitting on a bar stool, which puts me at probably about three feet in the air. I don't have any arms. Yes, you do. They always say, you're hiding them. You've heard that one too, right? Right, right, You're hiding them in your shirt. No, they're not there. And I got off the stool so they could feel my shoulders. Literally, they would touch my shoulders. I'm not embarrassed with that because that's what little kids want to do. They want to know you're telling the truth. Probably wanted me to take my shirt off, to be honest, but I was in a bar. I couldn't do that. Eventually, they kind of acknowledged maybe I was telling the truth. And then the little three-year-old, she was the prize of the day. She looked under my board shorts and she said, are they up there? (laughs) At this point, grandma gets worried. So grandma said, oh, I'm sorry. At this point, my wife, who's watching all of this takes place, she kind of becomes the referee. She goes over to grandma and says, it's fine. It's fine. He loves this, actually. He loves talking to little kids. You watch them. They're going to change in about 15 seconds, it should be, because they do. They just morph. They go from, okay, because that's how they think. You know this. You're living it right now. That's why we have to be patient with kids because once they figure it out, they're good. So grandma and Darlene are talking and and she says, by the way, he's used to this because he's actually a professional speaker. And the grandma says, oh, that's funny. So is my husband. Brian, Brian, do you happen to know this guy? Guess who I was sitting next to? Who? Brian Tracy. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So Brian Tracy, no, he turns and looks at me and he doesn't know me for a second. But then he looks at me again and he goes, I know you. I said, why do you know me? He goes, I've read your book. You're kidding. I said, you've read my book? He says, yeah, I sent you a note. Did you get it? I got a personalized note from Brian Tracy with pen and paper. He got my book because I was working with a client who licenses Brian Tracy's training program in Canada. Here's the best part of the story, though, and this is actually the segue. So we turn out. He shows up at an event for this vendor in San Diego. That spring... This was January that we met on the beach. That spring, he comes to this event in San Diego. He's going to be a guest because he's Brian Tracy. Mm. It was hilarious. Mm. He gets up to do a speech. 
But because he sees me there, he says to the group, by the way, he says, you should feel very privileged that you got a chance to hear Alvin Law today because I've never met anybody so authentic. He says, in fact, I know this to be a fact because how do we meet Alvin? On the beach in Maui? By the way, ladies and gentlemen, there was about 200 people there. Alvin Law is living proof that attitude does not take a vacation. How hard is it to be on when on means being happy? And it wasn't just about Maui. Everyone could say, well, you were on Maui. Of course you're happy. You said it. Pretty, pretty rare to see me in a bad mood. And that's just the way I am. How do you want people to respond to you? I want them to take a look at themselves and realize they've got more than less, no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. It's easy to say that when people are thinking that you and I are sitting in a, in a fancy place with great careers. You know, this one really, really got me. I, I actually ended up, this was a personal thing that happened to me a few months ago. I spoke at a band association directors convention in Canada. I was very fortunate to be their closing speaker for their convention. And just before I spoke, the Winnipeg, Manitoba Symphony Orchestra played on stage. They played a commissioned piece for a executive director that had died the previous year. They commissioned a song. Standing on a stage listening to a symphony play is amazing, especially for someone who loves music like I do. When I got up after they were done playing and all of the musicians stayed on the stage behind me, which was kind of weird, this thought occurred to me. Every one of those musicians started at zero. And don't we all start at zero? We all have our stories, but if we all start at zero, don't we all have some kind of responsibility for the end? That's what I'm saying. Hmm. Well, talk about the $200 million that you've helped to raise. Why, why is that important for you to use your voice, use your talents, use your situation to raise money? So in 1981, it was the International Year of Disabled Persons. Say that again. 1981 was the International Year of Disabled Persons. Okay. Believe it or not, people don't believe me. It was the first ever United Nations sanctioned international year the year after that was the year of the youth Hmm. or a couple years after that anyway point is all of a sudden there's all this focus on disability i'm in regina saskatchewan and that's how you say it Uh, i'm a dj on a fm rock station and all of a sudden because alvin law is a recognized celebrity kind of guy in the media in this town i get invited to do speeches because it's the international year oh we're going to bring alvin law in the theme is disabled Well, I go in and I do my talk. And what's funny about that, looking back on it now, was I was thinking to myself, you know, there was a lot of activism that year. There were all kinds of people came out of the woodwork. But there were kind of two groups. There was a group of really grouchy handicapped folks, and there was a group of us. Ours was the small group, not the big group. But ours was made up of all these people that are like that video that you can see in 2018. The trouble is it was ahead of its time, you see, because we were trying to understand disability. Like you said already, we didn't know an awful lot about it. People are ignorant. My wife often jokes that I'm the first handicapped person she ever even knew, let alone marry. So most of us, have we had experience with it? I don't know. I just don't know. So I go into 1981 thinking, 
I can do this two ways. I can educate people based on what I see as their ignorance, or I can enlighten people based on a whole different philosophy. And that is, we've all got something. That's what started this idea for me, was to not only educate, but to make people aware. So at the end of the day, these venues started showing up, telethons, TV shows, opportunities to go in the media and, and tell my story. So I thought, well, nice exclamation point if I get up there and play the drums, if I get up there and play the piano. And I started doing it not to show off per se, but the entertainment angle was about saying, here's why I want you to donate to this cause. Here's why I want you to donate to this group, because I am living proof that what makes the ultimate difference in someone's life is not sympathy, it's empathy. And if you care enough, you'll donate. I just seem to be really good at it. <laughs> so that's what I've been doing. Since 1976, I've been doing telethons all over. Never did the Jerry Lewis telethon, because I know a lot of people are thinking that right now. But did telethons in Canada, did telethons in the States. And always the key to all of this was always, yes, playing my music. But not to say, look at me, look at me, per se, but to say, look what's possible. And that's just one of my belief systems. You give. And by giving, you, you get. Well. You're amazing. <laughs> I am so honored that tomorrow you're going to be in front of 2,300 of my people. And it's that generation that, that we talk about. It's that generation that struggles. It's that generation that's still trying to navigate and figure out how they are valuable. How, how, how are they smart? And oftentimes it's the generation that they all have a story to tell. I'm just amazed that at such a young age they've dealt with so much of life struggles at such a very young age. The first time I spoke to your group, I felt a little bit fish out of waterish, right? What am I doing here, man? What am I talking to hair people for? What have I got to tell them? And I never really thought about it because I'd never ever spoken to a group of hair people before. Until I started kind of looking into some research. Because I, I don't, you know, a lot of people don't know this. I don't just get up and talk. I'm always looking into understanding my groups. And it occurred to me, hmm, if I had a deja vu. The kids in the cosmetology program at the Yorkton Regional High School in 1977 had one thing in common. They were the write-offs. Nobody wanted them around. They were odd. They were strange. They didn't fit into the square hole. That's what your group did to me the first time I spoke to them. I'm looking all up, and I'm thinking, oh my God, what am I doing here? Until it occurred to me, we have something in common, don't we? And that is we've all been given something we didn't ask for, but yet we didn't give up. I mean, I love that. I love it when I'm with a group of people that as a en masse culture say, yeah, we're lucky. We're lucky to be here. We're lucky to be in this organization. And we're not only that, we're lucky to be working with other people where we can make their day better. Yeah, by doing their hair, by giving them whatever kind of physical service we give them. And I'm not going to judge that. You know, I suck at that. I, I suck at trying to be okay with people with plastic surgery and to be okay with people that have had their bodies altered and to be okay with people that think physicality is the most important thing. I used to judge that. My wife taught me not to do that. But at the same time, I think if people really looked inside themselves, they would find that's where the joy is. Mm. That's why we can never find joy just by being perfect on the outside. Mm. But we can sure find it if we get the spiritual component down. 
That's what I love about being here. Alvin, do you have a final message for our listeners? I just think, look at your own lives. Recognize, yes, my story is one of overcoming. But also understand that when I say raise your own bar, it's not just a cliche. When you raise your own bar, you do make your own life better. And the only person that can do that is you. And just keep at her. It's worth it. It's totally worth it. When you reach the top of the mountain and you look out at the scenery, nothing beats that because you did the climbing. This is exactly how I knew it would turn out. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Thanks, man. Thanks, Alvin. Love you. Love you. Yeah.